everyone. Got your walking shoes on? Let's power walk the Bible. This is episode three, and we are covering the second and third books of the Bible, Exodus and Leviticus. If you want to do some reading before episode four, read the next three books in the Bible, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. Now, please pray with me as we get started. Almighty God, make me an instrument of your salvation and sanctification for these precious people you've entrusted to my care through this podcast, that by my life and teaching, I may set forth your true and living word. Amen. As always, we talk about all of the scriptures we are covering today, but we also focus a bit on a particular passage. Today, it is found in the 19th chapter of Leviticus. Listen as I read now from the New International Version. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Each of you must respect your mother and father, and you must observe my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make metal gods for yourselves. I am the Lord your God. Now continuing with the ninth verse. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord, your God. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly, so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. A driver did the right thing. When he saw the yellow light, he put on his brakes and stopped at the crosswalk rather than speeding up to get through the intersection. The tailgating woman behind him, however, went ballistic, 
pounding on her horn and screaming in frustration as she missed her chance to drive through the intersection with him. Still in mid-rant, she heard a little tap on her window and looked up into the face of a very serious police officer. The officer ordered her to exit the car with her hands up. He took her to the police station where she was searched, fingerprinted, photographed, and placed in a cell. After a couple of hours, a policeman approached the cell and opened the door. She was escorted back to the booking desk where the arresting officer was waiting with her personal effects. He said, I'm awfully sorry for this mistake. You see, I, I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing your horn, flipping the guy off in front of you and cussing a blue streak at him. I noticed the choose life license plate holder, the what would Jesus do bumper sticker, the follow me to Sunday school sign in the window and the chrome-plated Christian fish emblem on the trunk. Well, naturally, I assumed the car was stolen. <laughs> you know, sometimes the packaging does not match what's inside. In this episode, we have quite a bit of exciting ground to cover as we move forward on our power walk through the Bible. We will begin with the Old Testament salvation story found in Exodus and conclude with a discussion of our holy God as we find him in Leviticus. And we will learn that holiness is much more than packaging. At the conclusion of Genesis, the Egyptian Pharaoh gave his right-hand man Joseph, Joseph's family, the land of Goshen. This included all of Jacob's family from Canaan. So the Israelites settled in to raise their families and their flocks in Egypt, with the promised land of Canaan a distant memory. Now, as Exodus begins, we learn that it has been 400 years since Joseph's death is recorded in the last chapter of Genesis. Now note this break in the action of 400 years. We'll see it again just before the New Testament salvation story. During that time, the Pharaohs have changed and the new pharaohs don't share the same love for Joseph's family that previous pharaohs did. Here's a newsflash. When a nation's leadership changes, sometimes other things change as well, right? <laughs> yeah, we know that. Also, in the intervening 400 years, Jacob's descendants, the Israelites, have become so numerous that they have been enslaved. Now we see that the current Pharaoh fears that they will revolt. And he gives the order to reduce their numbers by having the Egyptian midwives kill every newborn Hebrew boy. We quickly see that women are the true heroines of these early chapters of Exodus. In chapter one, the Egyptian midwives refuse to kill the Hebrew babies. 
In chapter 2, we meet the mother of one surviving Hebrew baby boy named Moses. She courageously hides Moses in the Nile in a basket where he is discovered by Pharaoh's daughter. Moses' older sister Miriam has been hiding in the bulrushes and has seen the whole episode. She cleverly arranges for her mother to serve as wet nurse for the baby until he is weaned. Then the princess raises him in the palace and he grows up to look just like Charlton Heston. Now, I hope you laughed at that. If you are of a certain age, I'm, I'm betting you did. If you don't know who Charlton Heston is, well, then my age is showing. But back to the story. Moses seems to understand his heritage and has a heart for the Hebrew slaves. He kills an Egyptian slave master and then flees to Midian, where he marries, has children, and lives as a shepherd for over 40 years. Time moves ahead quickly, and in chapter 3, when Moses is 80 years old, God speaks to him from a desert plant that's on fire but does not burn up, directing him to return to Egypt to tell the new Pharaoh to set the Israelites free from slavery. Moses resists, coming up with a myriad of excuses does that sound familiar to anyone? But ultimately, he agrees to go, accompanied by his older brother, Aaron. So, two octogenarians set off to save the world. It's never too late. In Exodus 3.14, we find an important scripture for the entire biblical narrative and one of the most familiar names for God. Moses has asked God for God's name, should the people or Pharaoh want to know who has sent him. God replies simply, I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. Armed with this knowledge, Moses and Aaron return to Egypt and make their first appearance before Pharaoh in chapter 5 telling him that the God of Israel says, let my people go. God tells Moses that he will harden Pharaoh's heart in order to demonstrate his glory and power over the Egyptian gods and indeed over all of creation. As a result, Pharaoh refuses to let the Israelites go, so God sends 10 plagues upon Egypt. The Nile turns red with blood, followed by an invasion of frogs, lice, and flies. The livestock die as a result. The people become covered in skin sores from malnutrition and unclean water. Hail rains from the sky, followed by swarms of locusts and days of darkness. In chapter 12, Moses warns the Israelites to prepare for the tenth and final plague, death will come to all firstborn Egyptian children, but the Hebrews will be passed over by putting lamb's blood on their door frames. This institutes the lasting ordinance of Passover, 
celebrated by the Jewish people as the great salvation story of their faith, and by Christians as the great salvation story of the Old Covenant. Now, there are two Old Testament, New Testament connections here I don't want us to miss. First, the shedding of the Lamb's blood connects directly to John the Baptist's reference to Jesus as the Lamb of God in the New Testament. Second, this Old Testament salvation story contains the same essential elements as the New Testament salvation story, our salvation story, Jesus's resurrection after his death on the cross. In each case, God is glorified as almighty and all-powerful, and death is defeated. After the death of his own child, Pharaoh briefly relents, and the Hebrews leave Egypt. Pharaoh quickly changes his mind, however, and they are chased by Pharaoh's army to the edge of the Red Sea. God parts the waters, allowing the Hebrews to cross, but releases the waters to engulf Pharaoh's army as they follow. In chapter 15, safe on the other side, the Israelites sing songs of victory and trust God to provide for them, if only temporarily. We now move into the second chunk of Exodus, chapters 16 through 40. A bit of time perspective here. The Israelites' journey began in March to April in the Hebrew first month of Nisan. The final plague, celebrated as Passover, occurred on day 14 of Nisan, and on day 15, they left Egypt. We learn quickly as the former slaves begin their journey back to Canaan, the land of their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the land promised to them by God, that they are grumblers, constantly complaining about their conditions. They frequently lament that they were better off in Egypt as slaves. Responding to their needs, the Lord provides water for them from rocks, quail in the evenings, and manna, a heavenly bread in the mornings. In chapter 17, we meet Joshua, Moses' assistant and a military commander who leads the Israelites in defeating the attacking Amalekites, the first of the native peoples to attack Israel. After three months, the Hebrews arrive at Mount Sinai. There God establishes his covenant, one of our themes again, with the Israelite people. Then God calls Moses to the mountain and gives him what we know as the Ten Commandments, as well as additional instruction about creating a traveling place of worship for the journey, the tabernacle, the Ark of the Testimony, or Ark of the Covenant, and the Tent of Meeting. The Bible tells us that Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Meanwhile, back at the foot of the mountain, the people have given up on Moses ever returning. After all, it's been over a month, and the whole experience with God speaking to them from the mountain was frightening enough. 
How could one man survive being in God's presence for 40 days and nights? They convince Aaron, Moses' brother, to create a golden calf for them to worship. In chapter 32, they are reveling in worshiping their new God when Moses descends from the mountain with the two stone tablets of laws written by the finger of the true God. He sees what's happening and breaks the tablets in anger. He calls upon his tribe of Levi to kill 3,000 people as punishment. God tells Moses he cannot go with them any further for fear of destroying them. Moses pleads for God to relent from his decision to abandon them, and God does, more evidence of the value God places on his relationship with Moses and the nation of Israel. In this interaction, we also get an important and often referenced description of God. Moses asks to see God. God invites him to return to the mountain, and there God allows Moses to see just his back. In Exodus 34, 6 through 7, we read, And the Lord passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. A relational God, a God of grace. God recreates the stone tablets, and after another 40 days, Moses returns to the people with a radiant face, indicating that his encounter with the God of the universe, the great I Am, has transformed or transfigured him. In chapters 36 through 38, God's directives for building the tabernacle, the traveling place of worship, and the ark are carried out. In chapter 40, we read that the tabernacle is set up on the first day of the Israelites' second year in the wilderness. The Lord enters the tabernacle as a cloud and will continue with the Israelites throughout their travels, guiding them as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It has now been one year since the Israelites left Egypt. Now, on to Leviticus, one of the most underappreciated books in the Bible. The primary purpose of the book of Leviticus and all the instruction contained therein is to teach the Israelites how to live in relationship to God and to each other. Remember the Ten Commandments? Well, the first four address our relationship with God. The last six are about how to live in a holy way with each other. The rest of the instruction found in Leviticus and elsewhere simply expands upon these ten basic laws. The first seven chapters of Leviticus focus on the various altar offerings the Israelites are to present to God in the tabernacle. Chapters 8 through 15 give laws that focus on living in a community, including what to eat, personal hygiene, how to deal with infectious diseases, and childbirth. Most scholars agree that these were designed, at least in part, 
to keep the Hebrews alive and healthy in an ancient world where there were no water treatment plants and no antibiotics to fight infections. We will see later how these laws are part of our holy God's plan to set the people of Israel apart as holy also. In chapter 16, we read God's direction to Aaron as high priest on how to atone for the people's sins on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Aaron was to do this annually, to atone for the people's sins. As Christ followers, we don't make annual sin offerings anymore, do we? Why is that? Exactly. Because Jesus atoned for our sins once and forever on the cross. Hallelujah. Our scripture focus that we read earlier is found in Leviticus 19. I chose this passage because it includes several key points. First, in verses 9 and 10, we find a law that impacts not only the future of Israel, but of the world. God says to the people, when you harvest your land's produce, you must not harvest all, harvest all the way to the edge of your field and don't gather up every remaining bit of your harvest. Also, do not pick your vineyard clean or gather up all the grapes that have fallen there. Leave these items for the poor and the immigrant. I am the Lord your God. This passage is one of many in Leviticus that show God's compassion for the poor, the widow, and the outsider, as well as his expectation that we will demonstrate that compassion also. Known as the law of gleaning, it will also play a key role in the lineage of Jesus that we will discover when we study the book of Ruth. Later in this chapter, we find the source of what Jesus refers to in the New Testament as the second half of the great commandment. We read it earlier in Leviticus 19, 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. Nuggets of great importance here in Leviticus. In the last chapters of Leviticus, we read about special feasts, celebrations, and other sacred times to be observed by the Israelites. We also find repetition of many of the laws presented earlier in the book. As I mentioned in an earlier episode, things are repeated in the Bible, not haphazardly, but for a reason. Here, the laws are repeated to emphasize the importance of obedience, rewards and punishments for following or not following the laws are given. Ultimately, God provides a way for forgiveness and reminds the Israelites that he will remember his covenant with their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Before we leave Leviticus, I want to go back for a moment to the 11th chapter. There we read, I am the Lord your God. You must keep yourselves holy and be holy because I am holy. We heard again from chapter 19, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy, followed by a list of laws 
many of which sounded a lot like the Ten Commandments. Remember, repetition is important. Although there was a lot in today's section to focus on, I decided to entitle this episode, Our Holy God. In episode one, when we began our power walk, the message was Our Creator God. In episode two, Our God of Grace. Our next episode, a little teaser here, will be Our Faithful God. See what I'm doing here? One of the purposes of the Old Testament is to teach us about God, to introduce to us this holy, gracious, faithful, creator God who saves. Here in Leviticus, we learn that God is holy, and it is repeated many times for importance and emphasis. So what does God's holiness mean exactly? God's holiness is the foundation of the Bible's message. God's holiness means that he is set apart from the world and from us. His holiness shows up in all the qualities we read together earlier from Exodus. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving, merciful. God is the standard of goodness of justice, of truth, of righteousness, and of grace. We don't completely understand God's holiness, but we accept it and realize that it is God's holiness that makes him worthy of our worship. It's the other part of this verse from chapter 11 where we have a little trouble. God says that we are to be holy and keep ourselves holy because he is holy. How can we as humans be holy? An immediate problem I see, especially here in the 21st century, is that the word holiness is something we feel uncomfortable with. Often it seems to be associated with holier than thouness. In other words, if if we say we are holy, we might be perceived as believing we are morally and spiritually superior to others, perhaps judgmental, hypocritical, and prideful. But we cannot simply ignore this call to holiness just because we don't feel comfortable with the description. God has called us to be holy, like him, to be sanctified, as theologians call it. Are we sanctified, made holy, just by following a list of legalistic rules like the Ten Commandments? If we see holiness only in that narrow way, we miss the point. Several years ago, a popular slogan was, WWJD, what would Jesus do? just like one of the bumper stickers in the story I told earlier. That's not bad, but it indicates that we are attempting to imitate Jesus. And that's not true holiness. Holiness is not just imitating, but embracing the Jesus in you, God's presence through the Holy Spirit, and allowing God's holiness to shine through you. 
It's more than packaging. And it's more than behaviors. It's being. Being God. Being Jesus to others. Do you think of yourself that way? It's not arrogant or spiritually superior. It can't be because Jesus was not arrogant or spiritually superior. Being Jesus is being full of truth and grace as he was. Being Jesus to others means they may see Jesus in you. And honestly, seeing Jesus in you may be the only glimpse of God some people will ever see. So here in Leviticus, God has introduced a new concept to the Israelites, holiness. He used the foods they ate, among other things, to teach the concept of apartness, separating them as holy from the rest of the world. As Christ followers, we are set apart as well. Not like the Israelites by how we fill our bellies, but by how we empty our beings so that God's spirit of holiness can live within us. You see, God can't occupy a space that's already full. We have to make room for him in our hearts, our minds, our lives. How do you know if you have the, this holiness in your life or if you are even on the path to holiness? Well, you know, I love acronyms. So I created one for holy. For me, it breaks down what a holy with God kind of life really is. It's humility. It's obedience. It's listening for God's voice. And it's yearning for God's presence. To be filled with his spirit. To daily be more loving, more holy, more like Jesus. Are you humble, boasting only of God's gifts in your life? Are you obedient to God's word? Are you listening for God's voice that you may always follow him? Are you yearning for God's presence, emptying yourselves of the temporal and embracing the eternal? We live in a bumper sticker, soundbite, Twitter feed world. These are cheap imitations of communication and relationship. Nothing about our holy God is cheap. But if you are willing to clean house in your soul and empty your heart of everything of this world, God will set you apart for him. He will claim you as his holy child, and then Jesus will live in you. And the best news, everyone who knows you will know him. Not a cheap imitation, not a holier-than-thou Christian, but pure, loving, faithful, holy Jesus shining through pure, loving, faithful, holy you. This is God's story for your life.